Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about everything in print. And welcome back to Arrakis. I'm your host, Stuart in L.A., here with the second of six podcasts devoted to Frank Herbert's Duniverse. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to my first show, which was all about the imaginative 1965 sci-fi classic Dune. You know, that book overflowed with so many heady ideas about history, ecology, religion. I could barely get my hands around it in one recording. But looking at it at its core, Dune told a coming-of-age story for main character Paul Atreides. And yes, I've already gotten feedback on my pronunciation of these names. I knew that was going to happen, and apparently I was saying Atreides, and what listeners are telling me that there's an extra syllable, Atreides. So we're going to go with that today. Paul Atreides. Paul Atreides relocated to Arrakis and promptly lost his father and fortune in a coup conducted against his family by the emperor and evil house Harkonnen. But through the combination of his good genetic breeding and a powerful drug known as Spice, this 15-year-old boy learned to master supernatural abilities, as well as exploit a local legend that convinced the indigenous tribes of Arrakis to join Paul in crushing those enemies three years later. All in all, it was a pretty impressive show of force for a teenage mama's boy who really had only known the idyllic waters of his homeworld up to that point. Paul's transformation into the most powerful being in the universe was so grandiose that it left readers wondering what this kid could do for an encore. Well, it took four years, but Frank Herbert did provide that answer when he serialized the sequel Dune Messiah in summer 1969 in the pages of sci-fi magazine Galaxy. And by the end of that same year, the story was collected into a hardcover publication as well. And all of this was very good timing, because it was right at the moment when college kids and audiences outside the science fiction circles were first discovering Dune. And Frank Herbert was at last seeing a financial profit for his deep investment in this dense mythology. Now, Dune Messiah is lesser than its predecessor in almost every way you can measure something. The book weighs in at a relatively lean 259 pages, and that's a word count of about a third of what Dune had. The focus is smaller, too. All of the action is concentrated in Arakeen, the capital of Arrakis, as well as a few small outside tribal meeting places. The cast of characters has been shrunk to about a dozen major figures, and many of whom they are carryovers from the previous story. You already know who they are. I also think it's fair to say that this second book has a diminished reputation. For all sorts of reasons, people were disappointed, maybe even pissed about what became of their beloved Paul Atreides. You can see it in the book sales of Dune Messiah. You can see it in its critical reviews. You can just look at the fact that Analog Magazine, which was the publication that had great success serializing Dune back in 1963, that first one, they, they were very happy to give to their readers. They refused to print. They refused to serialize Dune Messiah. 
And I admit, this unpopularity was very much a barrier to getting me to commit to covering this book series. I knew I wanted to cover the first novel. I mean, I was a big fan of it. David Lynch adaptation was being covered over at Sister Show Now Playing. But I had to ask myself if devoting all this time and energy to five more thick volumes of science fiction lore was something that I really needed to do, especially if they all sucked. Well, I read Dune Messiah for the first time this past summer in an effort to vet the whole series and see if diving deeper into the Duneverse was something I could do. And much to my surprise, not only did it not suck, I quite enjoyed it. No, it wasn't a perfect follow-up. There are things that really confused me then and now upon my second reading. Messiah lacks the scope, and certainly it lacks the uplift of Dune. You're not going to see much evidence of the prophesied savior ending up doing much good for himself or his people. And, you know, if what you loved about the first book is all the adventure and the daring do, you know, Paul riding a worm into battle or taking out his nemesis in a knife fight, there is none of that in these pages. But what Dune Messiah does manage to do right is put the focus back on my favorite aspect of Frank Herbert's writing, which is those conspiratorial plots that expose the dark side of political life. The new book very much echoes the first third of the original Dune, which was all about finding that traitor in the House of Atreides. You know, we're 12 years later, and there are still people inside Paul's inner circle that are trying to kill him. And their plots within plots will result in the death of a few beloved characters. I can see how that might upset and disappoint a fan that was hoping that Paul would wind up being a hero. But my enthusiasm for the Duneverse has only deepened seeing that there are no easy answers for bringing peace to a tumultuous planet. Nothing in Dune Messiah betrays what Frank Herbert set into motion in Dune. And so it was actually easy for me to say yes to the idea about podcasting about all of his other contributions to the saga. But before I speak any further about the fall of Paul, I think we need to take a closer look at where Dune left him. At the conclusion of that massive first book, Paul Atreides was 18 years old and the most powerful person in the universe. He had reclaimed the planet Arrakis from House Harkonnen, and in doing so, he now held a total monopoly on spice. Remember, Spice Melange is that consciousness-expanding drug that's found exclusively on Arrakis, but it's actually needed in all the other houses, on all the other planets, in order to keep this computerless society running smoothly. The Emperor, who is the nominal leader of the entire universe, he was threatened by the Atreides' monopoly on Spice, and so he made this last-ditch effort right at the end to put down Paul's rebellion by sending in his private army, the Sardaukar, to Arrakis. And they are very infamous. They are the toughest of the toughest. Everyone in the universe fears them, but they ended up proving no match to the Fremen, who are the Arrakis cave dwellers. That They're actually tougher. If you can live on Dune, you're a bigger badass than anybody else. Paul unified them into his own army during his exile in the desert, and in the big climactic battle, Fremen defeated Harkonnen and Sardaukar. Now, Paul is going by quite a few names by the end of Dune. And I think the most important thing you could call him is Emperor, or even Mentat Emperor. Remember, Mentats, they eat spice, and then they can perform complex logical thinking. Usually, they advise emperors, and this is the first time that a Mentat is actually sitting on the throne. Paul has earned that reputation, and he has banished the previous ruler, 
He sent him to the very planet where he creates his Sardaukar, Salusa Secundus, as punishment for his role against House Atreides. And just to make his claim to power official, Paul also marries the emperor's daughter, Princess Irulan, even though that's not who he really loves. His heart belongs to a Fremen, Chani, who uh, he keeps as a concubine and his emotional anchor. And Chani is his real wife, is what I would call it, but officially married for power, Princess Irulan. Paul keeps those Fremen ties close, and they are responsible for a few more of his names. The warriors give him a, a secret title. They call him Usul when he was adopted into their fold, and that roughly translates as the base of the pillar. But Paul was also asked by the Fremen to take on his own name when he became an adult, and so in doing so, he decided to name himself after a little desert mouse that he observed while traveling through the sand. They're called Muadib, so he asked to be called Paul Muadib. Uh, you know, I guess that's his spirit animal. Where, where I come from, if you name yourself after rodents, they don't think of you as more mature, but... Hey, this is Arrakis. The rules are different. The Fremen are actually excited about this because they quickly observe the close pronunciation similarities between Muad'Dib and Mahdi, which is the name that the Fremen legend tells of an Arrakis coming savior. That it reinforces the idea that Paul is someone that is going to bring them out of the desert and into power. And what I find interesting about this is that that Mahdi name what comes from Fremen legend was actually planted in their culture a long time ago by the Bene Gesserit. And this is that sect of women that, yeah, they use mythology and religion to control people. You know, it's, it's hard for women in the Duneverse. They don't get to claim a lot of power unless, you know, they have married well or they advise a ruler and have them under their thumb. They don't get to sit on the throne. And so they have been using spice to navigate and weave together genetic bloodlines of royal families, and they have really been looking for this perfect genetic splice. And that's their name for Paul, too. It's the one that's hardest to say with a straight face, Quizet Haderach, which translates roughly into one who can be many places at once. I take that to mean that this Quizet Haderach is a man who can also do things that only women can do, that those are the two places that he can go. Remember, you know, only men can sit on thrones. So this Bene Gesserit, if they want to control the emperor, they need to create a man that is also a woman, that is also in their sisterhood, someone that will be subservient to them while he rules the universe as emperor. And the problem is, while Paul is the emperor, he doesn't feel particularly indebted to the Bene Gesserit. He didn't like the way they treated his mother, uh, who did disobey Bene Gesserit orders. They told her to conceive of a daughter, and she conceived of Paul instead. When you're in the Bene Gesserit, you can actually choose the sex of your child. So they treated her badly, and uh, I think that they also identified Paul as a mutant, and they just didn't realize his potential uh, as the was at Haderach until it was too late, you know, and so now he's sitting on the throne and the witches have no influence on his decision making. And I also think that the Bene Gesserit leader, Reverend Mother Gaius, is really identified by Paul as an accomplice to the emperor's plot to destroy him and his family, that 
He blames her for the death of his father and all that he went through on Arrakis. And so it's no real surprise that Reverend Mother Gaius is one of four traitors participating in a plot to kill Paul at the beginning of Dune Messiah. And joining her in that plot, maybe, is Irulan, who was Paul's wife and the daughter of the former banished emperor. Uh, she's not totally committed to treason yet, but she is very frustrated with her husband. I think that she would be okay with his assassination once he had given her a child, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, so she is certainly listening to what's going down, but she is not a main conspirator at the beginning of this story. My favorite, actually, of the traitors is Edric, who is a Space and Guild steersman. These guys are, are the ones that move stuff across the universe by taking a lot of spice and secret, and at last we're getting a physical description for how they look and use interstellar travel. I mean, Paul never got to see it. He, in Dune, really tried to see them while they were relocating everything to Arrakis, but they like their darkness. But here, uh, he's coming out of the dark to participate in this plot against Paul. Uh, turns out, vaguely humanoid fish is how the guild steersmen are described. Finely elongated bodies, fanned hands, thinned feet that never touch the ground. This is because guild navigators swim around in a tank of spice gas. They need so much spice, they actually are, it's aquatic. They're just, they're in a, their own zone in this glass chamber, swimming in spice. And we also learn their method a little bit. Apparently, they see the future. And I get the impression that that when you take spice and, and see the future, you're looking at a weaving loom, that time is all of these strands going all these directions, and each thread could lead you to a different possibility than where you are. And it's the navigator's job to pull himself along on a strand in which no misfortune befalls his cargo. And that, you know, you could pull the wrong strand and end up with space pirates ripping you off. You could end up in the wrong place, falling into a black hole, whatever. It's the uh, importance that guild navigators take enough spice that they can see the right strand to do their job and get everyone in their care to safety. And Edric sees that Paul Muad'Dib holds all the strings when it comes to supplying the guild with spice. He has the spice monopoly, so therefore he has the spacing guild at his mercy. And so Edric is willing to participate in this plot because he wants to put another guy in control of that spice. And that guy is our fourth traitor, and the most important one to Dune Messiah, Seidel, who I always have to remind myself is a human being. There are no extraterrestrials in this Duneverse other than the worms. I think everyone is human, or humanoid at least, started out that way. But he is radically disfigured, much like Edric. He doesn't look like you and I. He is a face dancer, which is part of a fringe order of spice users called the Bena Talaxio. And so, yes, that sounds very similar to the Bena Jesuit. Those are all women. Mintats are all men. The Bena Talaxio are more gender fluid. Uh, they are shapeshifters, and so they can decide to be male or female depending on the occasion. And that experimental side doesn't end there. I kind of consider them the mad scientists of the Duneverse. They are willing to participate in a lot of unethical or, or at least unconventional practices 
controlled mutations. That is how Reverend Mother Gaia sees it, that the Bene Gesserit controls bloodlines very specifically. They want to know what all genes are when they're being combined. The Bene Talaxio are, are more willing to do with freestyle. And uh, so they will do things with spice uh, that no one else is willing or daring to do. I like Seidel a lot. I think he's smart enough to realize that you can't just straight up assassinate Paul. It's not going to help their cause to make a martyr out of him. People are already looking upon Paul Mwadib as their god, and so to take him out of the equation violently, they're still going to swear allegiance to that that image. What Seidel wants to do is lay the groundwork to discredit Paul, and to make him really embarrass himself so that people just give up on him. And what I really love about Seidel is his integrity, that he would just never lay a trap in which the victim couldn't choose to get out of it. Uh, he builds an escape hatch into each evil plot he designs, because it's more satisfying if Paul is has the means to free himself, but refuses to do so. He wants the victim to also be an accomplice, and I think that's really cool. I mean, I kind of liken it to if you were on your front porch and you told all the mosquitoes, hey, I'm going to turn on this bug light. Don't go over there. It'll kill you. Well, flip the switch, and yes, they're still going to go into the zappers, and I think that that's how Seidel deals with it. He just knows there are things about his enemies that they cannot resist, and that's what he's counting on. It absolves him of guilt to say, well, they choose to participate. I'm giving them the option. They know it's a trap, and yet they won't be able to resist. And what's this trap he's setting for Paul? Well, all these conspirators, they want to bring back a beloved figure from Paul's past and use that against him. Who that is? Well, I never got around to talking about Duncan Idaho in my original podcast about Dune, but he was a mentor for Paul when he was a young boy, and he was a highly skilled swordsman a military genius responsible for opening the lines of communication between the Fremen and House Atreides when they first arrived on Arrakis. And when the palace was overrun during that coup by the Sardaukar and the Harkonnen, Duncan sacrificed his life to save Paul and his mother. Duncan was killed, dead, 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 no denial about that. But, uh, you know, I mentioned that the Bene Talaxio used spice to practice some diabolical experiments. One of the things they're known for doing is making golas, which are essentially zombies. And they're bringing Duncan, well, not quite back from the dead. They're reanimating a cadaver. You know, they can take a body and make it stand up, walk, talk again, have cognitive ability, and learn to be really a new person, but look like a person before. And that's the mind screw that Seidel really wants to do to Paul. He said he's acquired this long-lost loyal member of House Atreides. It's Duncan and body, just as he was when he fell during the coup. But he has an entirely different personality. He goes by an entirely different name. They call him Hate, I think is how you pronounce it. H-A-Y-T. That's not right. I apologize, but I'll be saying it throughout this podcast. Duncan becomes Hate. And, uh, you know, he's no longer using swords. They train him also to be a mentat. He is an advisor for an emperor. And so what Seidel is going to do is have Edric deliver Duncan as a gift 
just to say the Spacing Guild loves you so much, they're going to give you this Mentat who was also a member at one point of your family. And here's the really crazy thing. You know, I think anyone that would receive that would be alarmed. And then the gift itself. Hate is going to tell Paul, hey, I was created in a lab to kill you. You are going to die because you're going to keep me in your company. And the crazy thing is Paul still will know that and not be able to turn him away because of guilt. He feels so bad about this man dying to save his life. I don't know that he would execute him again, uh, replay history over it. And so that is that trap door I was talking about when you talk with Seidel, is that, yes, Paul could refuse to accept the zombie Duncan Idaho if only his conscience would let him, but it's not going to. In fact, it's only going to get harder when hate begins to display more and more of Duncan Idaho's original personality. He starts having memories and associations with other members of the family. He's going to even have a romantic relationship with Paul's younger sister, Alia, by the end of this novel. And so it becomes really debatable about whether he is or isn't that fallen hero, that, in fact, the Gola does, in fact, become the former man. But I don't know how you'd trust a truth-sayer that's telling you flat out he's designed to bring about your destruction. To me, this is a battle of wills and intellect far more gripping than any knife fight we got with Paul in the original Dune novel. Poor Paul really has very few friends at this point. Despite his massive popularity as Muad'Dib, he has sold himself as God Emperor Paul Muad'Dib really because he saw religious fanaticism as the most efficient way of bringing 10,000 worlds under his command. You know, once he forced out the emperor, he had to make himself as popular or more. And yeah, while he has many devotees that might describe him as bringing light to the universe, I think that Paul's reign has come at an incredible loss of life. Paul himself is going to describe his coming to power as a jihad, and that he had to deal with all of the other houses in the universe that were resistant to embracing his governance through murder. 61 billion people were killed, 90 planets were sterilized, 500 more planets were demoralized because he wiped out 40 different religions that they already had. People were praying to different gods, and now they must pray to him and he's done all of this to the universe. And historians have tried to speak out. There is a prologue in Dune Messiah in which a historian who's not particularly important to the rest of the plot is given a death cell account as an introduction to Dune Messiah, that we basically hear how he tried to tell the real story of Paul Muad'Dib and his followers deemed it heretical. And so what we're really seeing is, is that Paul's fans are killing anyone that speaks out against him. I mean, man, if you are executing people that want to contextualize the past, I don't think that speaks well about any culture's future. And even more compromising, Paul has done all of this ascension to power with the aid of cybernetic assistance. We are now in a universe that is bringing back computers that you can if you lose your eyes in battle, replace them with robotic implants. Uh, when you want to 
tell a secret message to someone, you can actually implant in someone else a messenger, something called a distran, and they can be triggered to say things that are not in their mind. Paul himself, in order to regulate his mind, will use something called a pulse synchronizer. And then there are the weapons. There are laser guns now. There are atomics. Paul seems to be inching ever closer to going back to the old ways that got us into the the big battle with robots, that he has disavowed the teachings of a religion, an orange Catholic Bible is what it's now called, that proclaimed that no man will make a machine in the image of a man. Well, I mean, that is, cybernetics is beginning to make its appearance in the empire, and that to me seems like a violation of everyone's ethics. It's probably why many people fought so hard in resisting the new emperor. I mean, this is a messiah who claims to be bringing ecological harmony to Arrakis, but it really, it's industrialization. And I think that also explains why there is a second group of conspirators who also are planning to kill Paul Mwadib. And the shocking thing is that they're some of the same people that put him into power. They are loyal Fremen warriors that have gotten disillusioned. They travel the universe fighting in Paul's name, only to watch themselves be maimed, killed, their children maybe killed. All of this so their Messiah can spread his influence elsewhere. That he's taken his eye off Arrakis. That he's more concerned about how he's perceived in other cultures. And at the same time, removing some core tenets of Fremen laws and beliefs. That, you know, when Paul didn't like the fact that Fremen cast out anyone that's blind from their tribe, they they send them off to uh, die alone in the desert, he saw that as distasteful and said, no, they'll have robotic eyes instead. You know, that is, again, changing a culture that is older than him. People don't like that. And so they see him really, I think they describe it as wasting water. And I don't know if that's literal. I don't think it means like, oh, you're you're leaving the tap on. But to a desert culture, to waste people's lives, and people are seen in terms of the water that they carry in their body, that is the ultimate sin that you can commit. And so, yeah, there are people that are willing to betray him now. Not everyone. We still have Stilgar, who was the Fremen leader who was among the first, really, to embrace Paul back when he came to live in the desert. He remains in service of Muad'Dib, but there are many in the original troop that are now planning to assassinate the false prophet. And wouldn't you know it, Seidel is also behind that assassination plot. I guess the Benetalaxiu wanted to have a plan B, just in case that Gola of Duncan, Idaho didn't pan out He's going to see that the Fremen do uh, some attack against Paul and uh, the Muad'Dib legacy. So Seidel is also using his shape-shifting power. He impersonates the daughter of a respected Fremen who is disillusioned with Paul. Uh, He murders the real daughter, and that's a subplot of Dune Messiah. We actually see Paul's sister Alia kind of doing a psychic CSI when they find a body in the desert. Who is this person? It'll end up being that no one knew that this Fremen daughter was killed and is now being impersonated by a shapeshifter. And in this disguise, Seidel is going to lure Paul closer to death and bargaining away his fortune. 
I like him. You know, I've already said that. Seidel's really cool, but I think he may have too many plots. Uh, he even has a third plan here. He is, uh, you know, again, his whole goal ultimately is to get control of spice production. And so he's also hijacking a worm. They call it also Shai Halud. He's going to carry one of the big ones off to another planet to see if he can reproduce spice in a different ecosystem. And, you know, the mind wanders just thinking about what that could be, that if you change the soil and, and what the worms are burrowing through, is that going to give spice totally different properties? Are you going to wind up with brown acid and everyone's going to go on a bad trip or something like that? I don't think I'd like to be a guinea pig to test that new spice out, but I would love to see the results. Unfortunately, this storyline goes nowhere in Dune Messiah, but I'm hoping that maybe Herbert will pick up that story strand in a future novel. I'm certainly intrigued by this premise, but Seidel's main plots will be against Paul directly, and so what he's doing in secret on another planet, not revealed here. And the truth is, Paul does not need any help destroying himself. He's doing a fine job on his own, losing his mind. And so... Even if these enemies weren't conspiring to take away his empire or enact vengeance on him for defacing their culture, I mean, I think he is cursed with having second sight. And this is kind of hard for readers to understand. A character that knows everything. Well, if you're omniscient, how is it that you don't know the people that are conspiring against you? We're always wondering what the limits are of his prescience. It's kind of like that old philosophy class conundrum, you know, the question that cannot be answered. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? You know, if you answer no, that means he can't do everything. And if you answer yes, it still means he can't do everything. He either can't make the rock or he can't lift the rock. And I kind of see that conundrum here with Paul. You know, if he can look so far into the future and see all of these timelines, why can't he change destiny? Why does he get stuck as a ruler and sit on the sidelines? I mean, maybe ultimately he's seeing that all lines lead to the same destiny and that no matter what strand you pull on, you're going to wind up at the same place eventually. And if that were true, I think that would make it harder to rule and see the future at the same time. If you know what the result is going to be, it's harder to act. The whole notion of free will is based on the idea that you have influence on the world, that you can change things. But if indeed certain things are set in stone, I guess then all unintended and undesirable outcomes of your actions are paralyzing to you. I mean, you, you see everything and you just don't want to do it. It doesn't really seem to matter. I also think that maybe Paul doesn't see everything. You know, maybe he's overrated, you know, as this god emperor. Alia will mention at one point that her brother has blind spots. It's not 2020 future vision. I think what it is, if, if you look at one strand and you're trying to see all the way that it goes... I think you're probably ignoring a whole lot of other strands in your peripheral vision. You can only focus on so much. And I think to see that far in the future, you really have to also do a lot of spice. That's going to be hard on your body. We've seen it in the Spacing Guild and the Benetalaxio. Your, your human form rejects taking that much drugs. And so I think maybe that's affecting Paul too. But I also find it interesting that Paul's predicting the future is muddied 
by his fan base that basically Arakeen, his capital city, is being flooded by followers who are promoting themselves also as fortune tellers. They've got tarot decks and crystal balls and all of their attempts to predict outcomes are tangling the wires of what Paul sees that, you know, whether it's true or not, what his fans are saying will come next in trying to emulate him, it means it's harder for Paul to do his job. And so, you know, maybe he should just enact that law too. He's pissed off enough people. What's one more law going to do? I think he just, you know, basically says, nobody perform any fortune telling within 30 miles of my palace. Kind of like the way they make you shut off your electronic devices before a plane takes off or lands. You know, we, I just can't risk you bending the way that I predict the future. If you want me to lead in this way, you need to knock off playing with the tarot deck. At any rate, this is the major struggle of Paul, uh, his burden of being an all-seeing Kwisette Haderach. And he really is longing to return to the desert with his concubine, Chani, just live a simple life again, raise a family. He's got to escape Seidel's traps, but if he does, he can be a father with the Fremen again. And that's really what we're hoping we're going to see. Hoping, I should say. It's not what we're going to see, and I'm loath to say too much about the climax of this story. I do want readers to discover the conclusion unspoiled. It's a short book. If you got through Dune, you can soldier through this one really easily. All I will say is this, that uh, eyes and ways of seeing are the dominant motif in Dune Messiah, and so we are going to see major characters go blind and be able to see in new ways. Um, you're going to get definitive answers about whether this Gola of Duncan, Idaho is in fact the assassin hate or the loyal friend of the family that died for Paul long ago. And you're going to see Seidel and these conspirators brought to justice. I also think you're going to see Paul brought to justice, that he is going to make a decision that is, you know, you may not like the outcome. Uh, this is not what I wanted for Paul at the end of Dune. But yes, it is a downer. And yes, I think sometimes Frank Herbert gets himself tangled up in doublespeak too, trying to be as intricate as he was in the previous novel. I think sometimes you get confused. It's hard to understand the rationale of every character. But I do think that this is a novel worth pursuing. And it is a novel that is a product of its time. Art is not created in a vacuum. When, when Herbert wrote Dune, it was the early 1960s. You know, JFK's Camelot, uh, fabled a time. I don't think that, you know, he was that caught up in myth. But by the late 60s, when Dune Messiah is crafted, you've got to understand everyone is seeing way more disillusionment in their leaders. There's a fatigue about Vietnam War, and that sort of mirrors... No, the fatigue with Paul's jihad, there's growing fear about nuclear annihilation. You'll see that on the page with all of this talk about using atomics. This second book is a reflection of when it was made, and I think in that way, it's just as impressive as Dune. Maybe what really pissed people off is that they thought, at the time, this was the end of the story. It seems very conclusive about what happens to Paul Muad'Dib, and it's a downer, but uh, what they did not know and wouldn't know for seven more years is that Frank Herbert was working on a trilogy that 
he will deliver in 1976 Children of Dune. And uh, you won't have to wait as long, I promise, to hear my thoughts on that novel. I will be getting to it hopefully in the next week, and we will be able to finally see all. Like the timelines itself, we'll do a little spice and we'll be able to see all of Paul Mwadib's story, if not all of his legacy, uh, when we get to that book. I hope you can join me for that. Until then, thanks for being here. Keep reading. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.